Good morning. My name's Kelsey, one of the attenders here. That's different for me to say. Um, we are going to read the Bible now, and I'll give you a second to get out your Bibles or your phones and turn to Acts chapter 2. We are jumping right into the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We're going to start verse 36 until 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's about to sneeze. I have a silly nose. Why don't you stand up, just to stretch your legs, and while you're standing up, I'm going to introduce our speaker. His name is Dr. John Dixon. He's also an Anglican minister. He is an academic. He's a historian. He was a former songwriter, singer, band member, toured the country. But most of all, he's a great bloke. He's a friend of mine, and he has been partnering with us and coming and speaking a couple of times each year to just explain the Christian faith. And he's one of the best at it. And he normally travels overseas, uh, but with COVID, he's been stuck in Australia. He's been doing what he also loves doing, which is writing books. And it's a great pleasure. I've invited him to give a special message today on this Sunday. So we've broken from the Mark series, and it's called Dream Church. Welcome, Dr. John Dixon. And have a seat. Well, it, it is a real privilege to speak here uh, as St. Matt's is on the cusp of fulfilling one of its great dreams for this church to, uh, to have a fantastic ministry facility, to make space for the great things that you have planned in your own vision. So to speak on this day is a, a delight and I can't wait to see what you do with that space. I've had a little look-see in between services. It is fantastic. Um, I have seen some pretty dreamy churches in uh, my travels over the years. Uh, one in particular stands out, the King Centre in London. Uh, they, about 25 years ago, approached the local council and said, how about you pay for half 
of a sports and community centre, we'll pay for the other half and we'll run it for the wider community. Somehow the council said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea and for the last 25 years they've been running this sports and community centre, the heart of which is an evangelical church and they serve that community in remarkable uh, ways. Uh, very different was Christchurch Clifton, where I did a mission some years ago. Um, here is this um, highbrow, high culture, high architecture, medieval church that somehow blends this uh, beautiful contemporary uh, praise and uh, contemporary preaching that has had a real impact on Bristol uh, and particularly on the uh, university student population. I also got to give a mention to Ireland Evangelical Community Church, uh, where I've done quite a bit of preaching over the years. Um, they uh, are really trying to reach the city in Hong Kong, and so they have bought uh, four floors of a big office block in Hong Kong, and uh, they have church on two floors. They have a cafe and kids' ministry and offices, and they have become a real part of the city life of Hong Kong as a result. And I uh, want to mention Ada Bible Church, where I do a lot of preaching in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, this started 25 years ago as 100 people, a little community church in Grand Rapids, and under the uh, leadership and Bible teaching of a guy called Jeff Mannion, one of the clearest Bible teachers you ever hear, it has grown to 10,000 people. Uh, in one church and I've enjoyed taking my kids to this church over the years and it's uh, wonderful to see them try and get their head around how can a church have a driveway longer than our street uh, and, and, and the Sunday school has a massive climbing wall uh, for the kids, it's thoroughly recommended, maybe in the next phase. But you know the thing I love about all these uh, churches uh, isn't the sort of visible fanciness. It's the way they hold on to traditional Christianity without being overly traditional. In fact, they'd say it's precisely because they're quite conservative in what they believe, like the old-fashioned Christianity. That, that means that there's this base that um, compels them to try crazy things for God. Their conservative theology doesn't lead to conservative practices, it's a delight. And I know that same spirit is alive and well here at St. Matt's Manly. That's why so many people love to come here. But I must say, none of these is my dream church. Not even St. Matt's Manly is my dream church. My dream church is in the passage just read to us, Acts chapter 2. Acts, of course, if you don't know, tells the first 30 years of church history. Starting from you know, basically 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, uh, Peter preaches the first sermon, and then Luke, the author of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, tells the first 25 to 30 years of what the Christians did. But here's the interesting thing. This paragraph is the only summary of church life in the whole book of Acts. And it follows directly after the first sermon in Christian history from the lips of the apostle Peter. So it's clearly designed to be an ideal. I don't mean a prescription, that is, every church must every day have all of these things, but nor is it just a description, this is what happened to happen. No, Lucas designed it so this is an ideal. And there are at least four ideals stuffed into this one paragraph that you also find talked about in the rest of the New Testament. And I want to unpack these four ideals, if that's okay. The first one sounds very boring. In fact, perhaps a little too nerdy. 
but it is crucial and it has always been a part of the dream church. They were students. Did he just say students? Yeah, students. The interesting thing is the true church is grounded in a particular message and absolutely committed to a particular curriculum. And you can see it in the way this passage is designed because this this, uh, ideal paragraph about the church really is the punchline of Peter preaching the gospel of Jesus being Lord and Messiah, as you can see on the screen, the one who died so we could have forgiveness of sins. Christians call this the gospel. That is the grounding of the church. And and as as a response to that message, 3,000 people, we're told, became members of this first church in world history. And then comes the ideal paragraph about them being devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and so on. The, The point is pretty clear. The church is grounded not in building programs or denominational ties or demographics, not even in warm, fuzzy feelings. The true church is grounded in a particular message that Jesus is the Lord and that he offers us forgiveness of sins. And I'm delighted that it's obviously at the forefront of St. Matt's Manley um, because um, your vision states it very clearly. Our vision is to grow God's church through excellent building programs. <laughs> no. Through the gospel. That message that Christ is Lord and he offers everyone in the building and everyone out there walking past forgiveness of sins, the gospel. That said, the ideal church doesn't leave it there. With that simple grounding message of uh, the gospel, the true church commits itself to a whole curriculum of study called the apostles' teaching. Notice it's the very first thing Luke, the author of Acts, tells us about the ideal church. The very first thing. They, the 3,000, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's not just the simple gospel message that Christ is Lord and forgives our sins. That's the whole apostles' teaching now recorded in the New Testament. And this first church, the first thing Luke wanted to say is they were devoted to that curriculum. And it's first, not because it's always the most important thing, but because it guides and nourishes every other thing. All of the ideals we'll look at today flow from, are guided by, the apostles' teaching. It's a bit like the food you'll eat today. It might not be the most important event of your day to eat a meal, but it will nourish everything else. That's what the apostles' teaching is like. What I'm saying is that the original church was a bunch of nerds. They were students. They were an educational community from the beginning. Within Christianity, words like mind, thought, insight, teaching, learning are sacred words. And in fact, the word disciple, I know it sounds like a very religious word. People think disciple means 
devotee or adherent. Did you know the word disciple literally means and only means student? It's the Greek word for student. Jesus gathered students and they were students of the apostles' teaching. Um, And it, it is one of the striking things about the early church compared to some parts of the modern church that they were much bigger nerds than we are. I know we think of ourselves as like the truly educated ones, but actually, did you know, if you're transported back in time to the year 200 in Rome, when Christians were still persecuted, by the way, right, they didn't own universities and the Vatican yet, in order to join the church, be baptized, you had to do 144 hours of classes over a three-year period before they would baptize you. What? 144 hours. There was a, a, a fast track school down in Jerusalem, and you can actually do it in 126 hours by the year 300, 126 hours of classes. The only catch is you had to do it in a, a seven-week block, actually Lent. They did three hours a day, six days a week for the seven weeks of Lent, and only when you'd done the classes would they baptize you on Easter day. By the way, about 10% of the lectures from these ancient catechetical schools has survived, and I've read them, and they blow my mind what was expected of ancient students of Christianity. And this is still a period when most Christians were lower class and under great pressure. It's a myth that you sometimes hear that the church is anti-education, anti-intellectual. And I know Christians have sometimes been like that, but from the beginning, They were good students. And you know, it's not uncommon today to find Christians who know far more about some hobby in their life than they do the Bible. I find find this really interesting. I don't mean your profession. Of course, you must know your profession better than anything else. But I mean, people have hobbies, you know, like beer making or NFL scores or poker or surfing or cooking or gardening. People who know way more about that stuff and say they're Christians than they know about the Bible. These first Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were students, but not just students. They were also family. They weren't just committed to a curriculum. They were committed to each other. And look at all the ways that Luke uh, connotes this togetherness. He describes it as fellowship, there in verse 42, verse 44, uh, 5, they sold property and gave to each person who had need. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, just like family does. Now, I must say, I know the church hasn't always been like this. And in fact, Luke will tell us some horror stories in, in the book of Acts itself, when, when they were squabbling against each other and overlooking the poor, right? So Luke knows this isn't always the case, but this is the ideal. And I know this more than I have ever known it in, in my life, because I've just spent 2020 writing another book uh, on the history of Christianity called Bullies and Saints. It is literally a century by century account of the blessings and curses of the church in the Western world. I am more than ever aware as I finish this book that that sometimes the, the saints have been complete bullies and if you've been bullied by the church, all I can say is that Christian bullies 
are traitors to the ideals taught by Jesus, traitors to the ideals laid down here by Luke. Because this early church was devoted to fellowship. Now, I know fellowship is one of those weird words. You think it's only Christians talk about fellowship. Actually, it's not. I mean, medical professionals get fellowships. Um, Academics get fellowships. But outside that, or maybe outside Lord of the Rings fans, they talk about the fellowship of the ring and what, right? Okay, outside that, though, we never use the word fellowship. What does fellowship mean? It's a weird, nebulous thing. But it's a beautiful word in the original Greek, koinonia, It means, how can I combine this? Camaraderie, togetherness, partnership, family, all rolled into one. And this first church was not just committed to a curriculum, but to each other in family, in fellowship. In concrete ways, actually. You notice the... One of the first things um, Luke tells us about this fellowship, this family, is that they ate together. In fact, he tells us twice, like we didn't get it the first time. So in verse 42, he says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And then down in verse 46, he tells us again, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The first reference almost certainly refers to communion. Because literally in Greek it says they were devoted to the breaking of the bread. It's a a reference to a specific meal. Okay, Um, and, And we need to remember in the early church, Communion wasn't this little thing that we go up there and take, you know, drink little cups. It was actually a meal. Um, I've stood in the oldest church building we've we've discovered um, in Megiddo in in central Israel, and the table of the church is in the middle of the building. It's not up here. So communion was a really big deal when they gathered together. But Luke says more than that. These guys ate like they were just family in each other's homes. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This isn't a reference to communion. It's a reference to just rather liking each other and having each other over for meals. I don't know this church well enough to know whether you're doing that or whether you, like many North Shore churches, because that's where I grew up, you know, I grew up in... I was born in Mossman and I, I've moved all the way to Kalara, right? That's my, that's my home. And I can tell you there is a master chef mentality in the North Shore. That means we hardly ever eat meals together because it has to be an extravaganza that you might as well film, otherwise we don't do it. Gone is the kind of spag bowl and mini magnums, soup and bread in each other's homes. Meals can, in our culture, become so performative instead of family. Well, in this church, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. More than that, they didn't just eat together. Part of this family was sharing resources. Do you see verse 44? Uh, Some people worry about this line because they think, were these guys communists? Look at this, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Well, that sounds communism, right? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It isn't communism, because we know this was voluntary. There was no compulsion here. And in fact, if I had more time, um, uh, and we, we go through the book of Acts, we'll see that on several occasions, private property ownership and wealth is celebrated. Okay, But here, I, I guess the point that Luke wants to say is, they were so convinced they were family that when they noticed there were family members who were struggling, they did what every family would do. They move around the family resources because it's outrageous that there would be someone amongst us who suffers unassisted. 
That's what he's saying here. One of the finest examples I have seen in my travels is the one I already mentioned, the, the King Centre in Chessington. They're not just a sports centre, though they do have indoor football and archery and all sorts of cool things like that. The social services this church runs for the wider community are amazing, including this great cafe, which on TripAdvisor gets really good scores, by the way. Um, and, and it's where lots of church activities take place, but lots of um, invitational activities take place. More than that, they've got a disabilities ministry every week. They have an arts and craft, especially for people who, who feel shut in. They um, have these awesome uh, activities where you know, artists come and, and help people paint and do sculpture and so on. And they have a food bank. I think it's every Wednesday morning. Um, if you have a letter from your GP or the social worker, you can come and get three days free food. A wonderful embodiment of family. And I know it's at the heart of your vision too. I'm not sure when was the last time you read your vision. Uh, I read it the other day. It's great. And the third value of your five values is care ministry, where you list some of the things that you want to do, including a, a soup kitchen, making sure the small groups are sort of focuses of care for each other, making sure no one slips through the cracks. Because you're family. Not just students family. Okay, the ideal church is made up of students, they are family, and thirdly, they look upward. And what I mean is perhaps so obvious, but it shouldn't go unstated. The church fundamentally is a worshipping community. The church fundamentally looks up, it is Godward. The church isn't just a rotary club or a musical society or a school. Even though the church shares aspects with all of those wonderful community things. No, the, the church is made up of worshippers who look up. And notice the ways that um, Luke in the book of Acts underlines the upward nature. They uh, pray, he mentions, um, they are filled with awe and they praise God. Prayer, awe, praise. Uh, one of the churches that was really impressive that I visited many years ago now, because my best mate was um, the assistant minister there, is Emmanuel Church Wimbledon. And two striking things about that church when I visited, I don't know if it's still the same, but when I visited, um, they were committed to giving half of their annual budget as a church away to overseas mission. Most of us pat ourselves on the back if we're giving 10% away, right? This church gave as much away as it kept. Extraordinary. Uh, but the, thing, the, po the point that really struck me is when they call a prayer meeting, you know, like one of those sort of midweek prayer meetings, you know, once a term, or I don't know how often you have it here. Bruce, how often do you have prayer meetings? Public? Every, week. Every week, every public, okay, woo. All right, so um, Tuesday mornings, there you go. When this church calls a prayer meeting, half the church turns up. They pack out the church. There's about 700 people in the church. At least half come. I mean, I've led a church, and, and, and we were stoked if about a fifth of the church turned up. The other upward dimension is awe, awe. This word is phobos in Greek, it means fear, it means the reverence, and it's nearly always in the New Testament directed at God. 
And what um, Luke is saying is people looked at what God was doing through the apostles, the miracles of that period, and they were in awe. They were fearful of God in that holy wonder. And closely tied to awe is praise. Do you see? Praise mentioned there. Well, we've done a bit of that today. Praise is the verbal expression of our wonder at God. When you're so impressed with God's power and love, you will just say, you'll say it out loud because if you are taken by God's greatness, it will bubble up and spill out of your, of, of your mouth. And people sometimes say to me, why do you Christians go on praising God? Is your God so weak that he just needs you to tell him how good he is? You know, every week God's waiting to be pumped up. No, praise is just the right, authentic, verbal expression of our joy and wonder at his greatness. If I can illustrate it like this, I do a lot of skiing. I go down to Perisher uh, several times a season, and last season, for some reason, I couldn't find any ski buddies, so I went down a lot by myself. I was a real loser. But here I am uh, on air, the beautiful mountain that I love skiing on, and it really struck me because I do these great runs. You should have seen me. And I get down to the bottom. I get down to the bottom. It's a beautiful day. The snow is great. I get to the bottom and I am bursting to say something to all my friends. And I, and I never realized how important it is at the end of a run to turn to your buddy and say, how good was that? But I get to the bottom of the run skiing by myself and I just feel completely incomplete because that's what praise is it's the right appropriate verbal expression of praise of awe toward God my point is church is upward church looks upward now can I say something a little bit controversial I didn't give Bruce any warning when I said this at 8 o'clock but he has since given me permission because, of course, I wouldn't have said it had he not. Our mob, right, our Sydney Anglican mob, let's be honest, can be highly critical of churches like Hillsong. Got a long, long list of sort of orthodox criticisms of, of Hillsong. Now, whatever you make of Hillsong, having had a lot to do with them over recent years, I am convinced they have at least one thing over us. And it isn't the fancy music. It isn't the hand-waving, it isn't the money, it isn't the haircuts. It's abandonment to God. They, they are really sold out to God. It's like they really believe God is in charge of everything. It's like they really believe God is the most awesome thing in their life. Our mob often is, is happy to worship God right, just, just to the borders of respectability, right? And then no further. Because we're Anglicans. And, and it has to be sensible, plausible, right? But actually, I'm convinced the more Godward a church is, the less concerned it will be about looking sensible. The more happy it will be to take risks. 
It'll be Geronimo because God is with us and he is great. If I can put it like this, the more upward our vision, the more outward our ambition. And that's the fourth element, outward. Do you notice the way uh, Luke in this passage says that there are some delightful outward elements? Right at the end, the last thing he tells us is they were enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Public favor, numerical growth. Now, to be clear, that enjoying the favor business doesn't mean these Christians won the favor of all the other churches. Can't mean that, can it? Because these are the first Christians. There are no other Christians in the world. And what what this paragraph is saying is this mob of Christians, this 3,000 brand new Christians, won the favor of all the people in Jerusalem. That is, the people who don't yet believe. Now, persecution is real. Okay. In fact, if we turn to the page on the book of Acts, chapter 3, Luke tells us about a persecution that breaks out. So Luke's not an idiot. He doesn't think it's all sweetness and light and everyone's always going to love the church. No, no, no. But he does nonetheless say we shouldn't have a persecution mindset where we expect everyone to hate us. You know, we we expect the media always to be against us. We expect the politicians always to shut us down. No, don't have that mentality. We can expect seasons of favor. This early church certainly did. Hey, you may have seen some really interesting research about Australian perceptions of Christians a few years ago, done by McCrindle Research Company. They asked the general population to list uh, what they thought of Christians. Here is our report card, friends, and they they came up with the top 10. Here's uh, 10 to 6. Hypocritical, opinionated, old-fashioned, judgmental, traditional. That's not very pleasing. But actually, here is five to one. Faithful, honest, kind, loving, caring. You might look at that and go, what is this beast (laughs) that can be hypocritical and judgmental and loving and kind? Jekyll and Hyde of the church. And the researchers puzzled through, and they think what's going on is Australians actually have two perceptions of Christians in their heads. And it's very easy to activate one or the other. It only takes some, you know, ABC uh, sort of expose of something a church has done that's hypocritical and awful to activate this sort of sense in Australians. Oh, all Christians are hypocrites. They're horrible, da, da, da. But then it only takes a meal dropped off in, in a needy situation from the local church for the other side to be activated and for Australians to go, oh, yeah, that's right. Those Christians, they're the ones who look after you when you're down. How we behave in public and private can activate one or other of those perceptions of Christians. And all I'm saying is Luke reckons it is a beautiful ideal to win favor. But along with favor comes growth. Do you see the last thing Luke tells us about this church? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, added to their number. This is a golden thread through the whole book of Acts. If you're creeped out about church growth, you need to read the book of Acts because Luke, one of our inspired biblical authors, 
loves growth because growth is human beings coming to know the Lord. Have a look at this. I mean, that's the passage in Luke 2, but we just flip over to Luke 4 and we get this. Uh, Sorry, Acts 4. But many who heard uh, the message believed and the number of people grew to about 5,000. Yippee, chapter 5. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Chapter 6, 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. 6, 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples or students in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Chapter 11. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Acts eleven twenty four. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Acts 14. They spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Acts 17, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. I'm sure you get the point. And I wish I had more time and I'd tell you the story of the first 200 years of church growth, which blows the historian's mind. I've had a very famous Roman historian in the world today say to me that the expansion of Christianity from year dot to 300 is miraculous. But we don't have that time. Do we? No, we don't. (laughs) But I will tell you about a church I preached at uh, some years ago uh, called Saddleback in Orange County in, uh, in California. It started as a Bible study in the home of Pastor Rick Warren. It is now 30,000 people in Bible studies. Uh, excuse my um, terrible uh, videoing. <laughs> I was like going, what, what? Everything you see there is part of the campus now. It's bigger than Sydney Uni's campus. Rick Warren, Rick Warren Saddleback. And it's easy for Aussies to be cynical about this. Okay, you know that big Americana giant mega church. And, and often it's just us covering our own lack of ambition. Or it's a kind of tall poppy thing going on. But when you visit these places and you see the integrity of the leadership the social programs, the educational programs, their their prayer meetings. And in the case of Saddleback, the fact that in 30 years, they have sent 5,000 missionaries out from their church, 5,000 missionaries over 30 years. And you realize sometimes growth is awesome. There are two unhealthy approaches to church growth. One is to pursue growth over everything. You know, where growth is like an Amway thing. I mean, no offense to those of you who love Amway. The Lord bless you and keep you. (laughs) I I once accidentally criticized Amway at a church in um, Grand Rapids, only to have the CEO of Amway come up to me after the event, because of course, the world headquarters of Amway is in Grand Rapids. Um, Anyhow. I hope you know what I mean. But very few Anglicans are ever going to make that mistake of pursuing growth over everything. Our problem is, is more a spiritualized commitment to staying the same. I have had people say to me in my church, if this church grows to a certain size, I'm leaving. You know what I thought, right? But I didn't say I've I've had another person say to me, John, 
It's just as important that everyone knows everyone else's name as it is to keep adding new people. It's fake spirituality. It's pitting community against growth in numbers of human beings coming to know the grace of God. Here in our text, we have a beautiful example of a church that was absolutely committed to family and yet delighted in seeing more and more people come to know the Lord. I'll never forget a moment in my church's um, strategy sessions uh, some years ago now over at St. Andrews Roseville. We started talking about what would be a reasonable uh, expectation of growth in our church. You know, if the Lord blessed us, how would we cope with growth? And um, uh, we, we looked back on our recent history at St. Andrews and saw that there was a five-year period when we grew 10% per annum. And we thought, no one could accuse us of being crazy then in thinking maybe 10% per, Adam, uh, per annum was, was a thing that the Lord could do. So we then did the maths. Okay, we were about 350 at the time. So we said, what would 10% per annum look like? And it goes like this. Year one would be 385, then 423, then 465, then 511, 562, and very soon we'd be close to 1,000. And at that point, there was a murmur in the room. And of course, people were going, is 1,000 too many? And then beautiful 85-year-old saintly Barb Fitzherbert put up her hand in the meeting and said, it's not enough. It's not enough, she repeated. And no one argued with Bob Fitzherbert, right? <laughs> no. And nor should we argue with the longing for growth. Now, of course, friends, worship of God and togetherness, these, these are priorities. But what I guess I want to say is that true worship of God will push us to long to reach out to more people with this wonderful news. How could it be otherwise? To long for public favor, to celebrate growth. Or as I put it earlier, the more upward our vision, the more outward our ambition. So may St. Matt's manly continue to be and increase in being good students, family who look upward and outward to the glory of God. Lord, will you please help us hear your word uh, this morning and by your spirit be changed by it to have the ideals that you want us to have. Help us, Lord, not to be shaped by the world but to be shaped by your word and empowered by your spirit to achieve your aims to your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus who went beyond the borders of respectability for us, gave himself for us, rose again in glory. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.